0: Welcome to Embedded. I'm Elicia White alongside Christopher White. Our guests/slash co-hosts are Stephen Craig and Parker Dillman of Macrofab and hosts of the Macrofab podcast.
1: Hey, everyone. Mm -hmm. Crossover. (laughs) Sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm Parker and I'm Stephen. And we're from the Macrofab Engineering Podcast.
1: And I'm Chris from embedded.fm podcast and
0: I'm Alicia from embedded.fm podcast and logical elegance and all of the other insane things I get into.
1: Oh, this is going well so far.
0: Oh yeah. Okay, um <laughs> Woo-hoo, we
2: made it past the intro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, let's let's do this. Oh, can you tell us about yourselves and then we'll like share and all of that.
3: All right. Um i Parker-Doman, I'm an electrical engineer, um, born and raised in Texas. Um, started or co-founder of MacroFab. Um, it's been my life for what the last four and a half years now. Um, do electrical, you know, manufacturing for small OEMs, specializing in doing prototypes and small volume runs, stuff like that. Um, I like Jeeps. I like hunting, camping, fishing. Um, Taking things apart, so
2: that's probably what got me into all this. So, and I'm uh, Stephen Craig. I'm also a native Texan uh, for the majority of my life, not originally, but the majority. Um, Wait, I how can you be a na- partially a native <laughs> Texan? Because I have uh, I have given up my Oklahoma residence. Oh, that is, that is no longer. I'm officially a Texan. Um, so I. <laughs> I am a general purpose engineer at MacroFab. Uh, I have been at MacroFab for two and a half, three years, something of that Something like that, yeah. Uh, So I am a hacker and a hardware engineer. I prefer analog audio electronics, do a lot of work in that. Yeah, we're kind of,
3: I kind of do more of the digital stuff and he does more of the analog stuff. So we complement each other quite well on projects.
0: You look lovely today, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) all right uh well i'm alicia white a native californian used to live in southern california now i live in northern california
1: middle california
0: middle uh software by training software and general engineer by training and went to hp when I first got out of school, learned about big companies and just kept falling in love with ever smaller companies until finally I gave up and founded my own. And now we do embedded software consulting. I do embedded software consulting. Someone took well, a so full time job. Went from
3: like a million people to like two, right?
0: And now it's at one. I've been abandoned. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You've reached full transcendence now. <laughs>
1: uh yeah, I'm I'm Chris as we've already mentioned several times. (laughs) Uh, I'm a software engineer as well and started out also at a big company at Cisco Systems doing networking stuff and then went to a startup doing more networking stuff and then a succession of startups after that doing embedded systems things and medical devices, uh, consumer products, uh, all kinds of things. I do not have electrical engineering training of any kind except by osmosis. But uh, I like playing music and the beach. Yes. Our our beaches
2: are a lot um, different than yours out there. Ours are a lot more brown and kind of nasty. (laughs) So I'm excited about uh, this podcast because we kind of have like both worlds coming together here. We have the hardware and the software world. And we kind of, I guess we're going to take a peek into the minds
1: of both, right?
0: Yeah, that was kind of my goal. So we could find out what software and hardware engineers...
1: Let's find out what's wrong with the other side.
0: (laughs) I was going to say want from each other, but we can go with what they hate about each other instead. That works too. Ten
1: things I hate about you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so do you want to do that or do you want to tell us more about your podcast first?
3: I mean, sure, we can. I mean... So the, the MacFab Engineering Podcast actually was created just so we could, we had a blog on our on our website, MacFab.com, and um, the problem with blogs is you have to make lots of content, a lot of, like, over and over uh, regularly so that you have people coming to your blog a lot. Um, and so... We were write, I was writing articles at the time. This is before Steven even came on. I was about uh,
2: to say, because I was writing articles, too.
3: <laughs> yeah, but at the very beginning, it was just me writing articles, and I could get, like, an article out every, like, three months. So it was Ooh. really slow. <laughs> and then, um, well, because at was the time, there was, like, yeah, well, at the time, we had, like, six people here at MacroFab, and so, like, I was running the assembly line. I was doing, like, 80 different things. So writing an article was so far back, you know, on the back burner, um, and so we're like, hmm, how can we make more content regularly and make it easy? And that was kind of how the podcast came about. Steven came on board, and he's like, yeah, the podcast sounds fun. And we put together five in my kitchen and um, published those, and people seemed to like it. And so we went to a studio and started recording, and now we have our own equipment. Cool. Um, the big thing I like to... I, I try to hammer home with our podcast is it's not an advertisement. Um, I don't like promoting MacFab on the website on the on the uh, blo- uh a podcast. podcast, and I like to talk about engineering and our projects and cool things that we see every week. Um, so yeah,
2: yeah, and you just kind of get our perspective on either what we're doing or what someone, one of our guests is doing. It's just a bunch of fun, you know, mainly it, it it's hardware stuff, but uh, it kind of covers a lot of, uh, of other things at the same time, but it's just kind of, you know, a fun thing that we we get to do every week. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you do, you have guests, but you also talk about news and what's current and all that. We usually avoid news um, and focus on guests. Uh, do you have any favorite topics you like to hit?
3: Uh how shitty IoT is. That seems to be a <laughs> recurring
2: topic. <laughs> yeah that, that, that's, there's been plenty of those for sure. Uh and and if you if you look back uh there were there's kind of two ways to describe uh, – well, one way for each one of us, it would be Parker equals Jeep and Steven equals synthesizer. Uh, that too. That's a <laughs> uh, reoccurring theme. There's a, both of those are reoccurring topics for us because we both do a lot of work in those. And, and it'll, it'll be something where if you listen from the beginning, you can hear Parker's Jeep evolve throughout all <laughs> of the
3: – It's almost sentient now.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 a lot of it is, you know, he's designing some kind of electronics or whatever – crazy cruise control crap is going on
1: in there. Yep. You need to combine the two. Some sort of Jeep synthesizer.
2: Oh, that'd be great. But, well, okay, that's that's one of the biggest problems. I'll say that this is a problem with our our podcast, is we have gobs of projects that we do. And we talk about that on a regular basis. So thank you, but... No, thank you for giving us another project to do.
0: (laughs) I I went through the list of Christopher's project on one show, and it was like twenty-five things long, and and made him give him updates, give updates on all of the projects, and it was so ridiculous. Yeah, that's brutal. (laughs) Now they're thirty,
1: and they're also in the same status they were before. Uh,
3: I think if if that happened to me, I'd have to go see a therapist.
2: Well, we haven't we haven't finished the project that we talked about on the very first podcast. So that's yeah, still a box of parts.
0: <laughs> it's tough because you do want to talk about interesting stuff, but how do you do interesting stuff every week? I mean, realistically, we have jobs. We do technical things we can't talk about, and so for our hobbies, we're going to do extra electronics, and then we're going to make a podcast about them.
3: Actually, that's kind of how it works you we, we usually like alternate which one's project is like the lead at the beginning of the podcast, um and so we just alternate so basically you get two weeks to kind of get some progress on a
2: project going, um, yeah, and you're scrambling the night before the podcast Is yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is this why you started having guests a lot uh
3: n- not really oh. it's usually guests are. Just to bring in some outside skill set that we don't really have.
2: Well, and at the same time, I, I think as our listener base has grown, so has the desire for guests. And people know, asking us? us or well, yeah, people <laughs> getting bored. Yeah, they don't want to keep hearing about Jeeps and synthesizers. They want to hear about something else. But no, like we, we just we just have more opportunities for guests. So it works out. Yeah. and And it's fun for the host to talk to guests.
0: I like that. Sometimes I can ask somebody I want to ask technical questions of, and I can say, "Hey, be on the show," and then I can ask them all my personal technical questions and not have to go through like support forms.
2: <laughs> your own personal FAE, right? <laughs> we we actually sort of had that the other week when we uh, we had a patent lawyer on, and oh, we yeah, discussed. Yeah. And 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 what if you listen to that podcast, you get basically your first hour of legal counsel for free in a way. You know, if you really read between the lines.
0: That's a good one. We had our accountant on once to talk about uh, incorporating businesses and in taxes, and it was totally to
3: listen to that one.
0: outside the scope of what we usually talk about, but it was fun, and I think a lot of people listen to it.
2: <laughs> That's great.
0: Okay, well, shall so we get to the actual how to make stuff, uh, how to make software and hardware engineers work better together. Wow, that that really doesn't flow well, does it? Um, so what are the things you hate about us? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, what's actually funny is I've actually only worked on two projects in my life that had separate software and hardware engineers. Was is- Macrofab one of them? No. <laughs> it was my the previous company I worked with, which was Dynamic Perception, where Church which is our co-founder here at MacFab. He was the other founder there at dynamic perception. And he was the person who was writing all the code and I was designing the hardware. Um, so this is, it's, this is going to be a very interesting podcast. Cause I haven't really worked like this before, like with these two separate, like I usually, for my personal projects, I write all my firmware.
2: Um, now I write it poorly, but, um, I Try <laughs> well, and I think a lot of your projects, uh, they're large, but they're not of the scale that requires a team. Oh, that's true, too. So, well,
3: no, no, the uh, pinball controller has a dev team now, that's true. Yeah, yeah, so maybe I'll learn something on how to manage that because I have no idea what I'm doing.
2: Yeah, you'll learn why they hate us, I guess. Or, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I, I've worked on uh, some teams before, um, where I've actually had uh, technically the, the product line I was working on was owned by me. Like my name was on it, but I had a f- dedicated firmware engineer and a dedicated software engineer who in all honesty, they were, you know, we all owned the project equally. And so the firmware guy did all the code for my micro that was on my, my boards. And then the, the, uh, the person doing the software, she wrote all the code for, you know, the test programs and, and things like that. So I have a little bit of experience of working, you know, hand in hand every day with on a with software guys.
0: That's funny, I don't work as closely with hardware guys as I used to because I am doing more startup work and they want breadboards so then they can get prototypes so they can get venture capital. But I end up buying my boards off of Tindy or Adafruit or SparkFun or Aliexpress and just slapping them together and hoping that nothing really goes wrong with that plan. Um, But I used to, you know, I used to sit next to my double E. I used to share an office with my double E and, and we would talk every day. It's weird to have more separation than there used to be.
1: Well, and as the companies get larger that that the separation gets further and further, yeah, you know you different get departments, and then you have meetings that occasionally you'll cross paths and the occasional schematic review usually there isn't a, a, a reciprocal thing of, of any kind of firmware review by hardware people, but uh
0: it's a little unfortunate sometimes,
1: yeah, and then lots of miscommunication and and uh anger so i I think it's the separation <laughs> that that causes know <laughs> i think it's the separation that causes problems a lot of times because people will make decisions that they think are best and they won't even realize that they have some implication yeah
3: yeah how that affects other other aspects of the project
2: well yeah and 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 to be honest in 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 all reality i see kind of the hardware firmware side maybe there's a little bit of distinction when you come to software but the hardware firmware side those guys are are in bed you know all the time i mean those guys are are linked together almost 24 7 with what they have to do because they because if any one of of those people make a change to a product it affects everyone else and so you really have to you know you have to have real strong communication with your software people uh and your firmware people uh or you will get you know you will result in anger i guess <laughs> the way you put it
1: well i don't know i mean it depends on your definition of firmware it's kind of loose
0: it's uh, we, we don't want to get to started on that. We've, we've
2: had like full day arguments on where firmware starts and where firmware ends here at, at MacroFab.
0: Oh, I don't think there is an answer to that. I mean, when you say firmware, some people will say, "Oh no, that's the microcode." If you're actually writing in C, that's not real firmware. And other people who will are say, those people. You <laughs> worked with one of them. Actually, one of them argued with me. One of the people you worked with who wrote microcode. Um. And then there are people who are like, well, if it's not on the web... That's hardcore
3: gatekeeping. Yeah. (laughs) You must write an object or assembly code to be firmware.
0: (laughs) Um, So, I mean, firmware is between hardware and software. And whether the software is on the device or the software is in the cloud, I don't think there's a solid line.
1: There isn't a solid line in the stuff I do every day. No. I mean, I'm... People would define what I do in the morning as software, and maybe the afternoon is firmware, uh, and it's all one stack, you know, going kind of morphing from one to the other. So it's yeah, yeah it's it, a tough thing to, to it define. It wasn't.
0: You were just complaining about you were having arguments with both the hardware engineers and the design team because there was no the way, industrial design team. There was no way you <laughs> yes. could solve both of their problems at the same time. Right. So that's firmware for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah we, we should just argue about this
3: <laughs> actually actually how about this what makes an embedded system
1: embedded oh god not again
0: <laughs> uh, no no it's pretty easy uh an embedded system is purpose built for its application and what that usually means is it's resource constrained now is a phone an embedded system Well, to the person who has to program the operating system or figure out its sleep states, absolutely, because they are totally resource constrained. To the person who's writing Candy Crush, no, it's a computer. And so you can have different perspectives for the same device, but it's whether or not you are worried about your resources and uh, how you are constrained within them to most efficiently serve the purpose of the device.
2: Mm. So it's a sliding scale in a way. It depends on what you use it for or what you, what part of it you're working on.
0: Yeah. But, of course, there are things like um, Fitbit or microwaves or even cars that y- you have to say those are definitely embedded because nobody works on them who isn't aware of their resource constraints.
1: Really? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: Sorry. No, no, no. no I mean, that's, a, that's a really good definition. I like runs that JavaScript definition.
1: apps, so <laughs> I don't know.
2: But let, uh, let me let me throw a monkey wrench in real quick. What about a Raspberry Pi? Is that an embedded system or not? Like, if you write if you write a Python program that runs on it, wait, wait, wait what if you write a Python program that like spins a servo using some of the pins? Did you just com- change a computer into an embedded system? Because well, you purpose-built I, purpose think, built I it?
1: think yes, and I think that that's the purpose-built single-use thing. I mean, well, I okay, how about this example? I worked on uh, medical imaging scanners that the main core was a Windows computer. Is that an embedded system? It did one thing.
0: Yes, definitely. Yeah, we, yeah, we have Windows? a reflow
3: oven that has Windows XP on it. So,
2: I mean it does one thing reflow boards yeah the uh the
0: self checkouts
2: at home depot all run um pick microcontrollers they are embedded systems they do one
0: thing and so the raspberry pi i don't i go back and forth because that is such a computer it is such a bigger computer than i had for all of the first 10 computers i had so how is that not a computer but then once you put it in a robot and all it's doing is controlling the robot then how is it a computer anymore it's a controller
1: so i think i think it's it can be unuseful to to discuss this Actually, too much
3: discussions. yeah because, we're, we're, because we're, you can we get jump right to like yeah. the meta
2: side of the differences between hardware and software
1: <laughs> but i think you know something that interacts with the real world something that has a single purpose that's probably a pretty good you pass butter yeah <laughs> yeah you pass butter exactly <laughs>
0: Okay, but we know what hardware is. Do we? Even though hardware isn't as clear-cut as it used
1: to be. Have PGA, it seems like software yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. flat flicks,
2: PCBs, <laughs> they're not real hard. That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about those? I mean, I see a lot of hardware engineers using them, and I'm like, you know you can't solder to them, right? And then they flat come back, flux? and they're like, oh, it's totally fine. And then like after five of them have burned on their soldering iron, they're all, oh, I wish I'd used a real board. Oh I we solder flat flex all the time here. It's not a problem. Yeah and and there's there's
2: purpose built soldering irons the uh what yeah. do they call them um uh hot bars. Uh, they call them hot bars for uh purpose built for flat flex.
3: They're just really really wide soldering tips uh,
2: on an arbor press basically. So
0: But they're but, cooler too, aren't they?
3: Yeah, well well it depends. Um cuz you're still trying to solder lead free, so you still need the yeah, hot you still got to get hot enough. So it the it's actually sometimes it's even hotter, so it gets a higher impulse with less soakage, heat soakage.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I still don't. I still don't love flex because I definitely cannot solder on them, and I have watched my hardware engineers flame their flex.
3: <laughs> <laughs> They're expensive flux connectors,
0: and, and then you're like, I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. I'll just go to the bathroom. <laughs>
3: Oh, so go back to the. Like, we we're talking about if uh, Chris was talking about if what hardware is like. So he saw, he brought up the example FPGAs, which is very interesting because
2: is what is like VHDL and Verilog code. Then it's a physical definition of metal connections inside of a semiconductor device. So in a, in a sense, it is code. It's code,
3: but it represents a hardware structure.
1: Not directly. It's sort of like a
3: picture,
2: in a way.
1: Hmm. I've always thought about it as logical, a logical definition of, of how things are clocked and what to do when certain clocks happen. And it seems more like C code to me, except all at once.
3: Yeah, it's it's a lot like C code. Um, but the thing is, oh, so it's C code that. Well, kind of like, and we're talking about Verilog, it's kind of yeah. like C code that compiles into a hardware definition of what's going on. Right, right.
2: that's what I was meaning by a picture, okay. like it okay. actually physically changes something in the real world. You know, I guess you could argue that, nah, I'm not going to go there. Now we're getting way too meta. I was about <laughs> to argue about code changing things in memory, but we won't go down that route.
1: Yeah, but nobody looks at memory, but you could look at a schematic that an FPGA Represents. That's
2: right. You could actually write a, a schematic of what you ask the FPGA to oh, do. Whole gate logic. You could if you really wanted to.
0: If you really wanted to. I
1: mean, people do. Look yeah. Amazing. I mean, that would be horrible.
0: That would be. Yeah.
2: But
3: somebody out there probably does do that. Well, the the in school, the first time you program an FPGA, you do it with gate logic. You draw out all the gates and connect it together. And then once you learn VHDL or Verilog, you're like, why did they make us do that? <laughs>
1: I'm never doing that again. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, let's see. We have we have actual questions here. Oh, right. There was this one. Um, this one is a big baffling question for me. Um, you like picks? Like really? Like you like pics? What did they well, okay, do to so you?
2: Okay, th- so th- that that probably <laughs> that's probably just Steven. Yeah. That pro- that probably okay. So so I'll give I'll give just a, a short story on it. Picks are. I, I do like them and, and one of the reasons why I like them or, or, or a chunk of the reason why I like them probably has to do with nostalgia. So, uh, at my school, I studied mainly, uh, semiconductor physics and analog electronics. I did very little digital electronics at my school and that was by choice. It just, it didn't interest me on, it wasn't, you know, big on my to-do list, um, uh, but after I got out of school, I realized, well, I have to learn this sometime. And so uh, just not knowing so much about it, I just decided to go with PIC. And I taught myself everything microcontrollers based on PIC architecture. And I literally just got a data sheet and read the thing cover to cover, like 300 pages, just because I was like, I want to learn all of this stuff. And so I started with PICs. And so they, they weren't really that foreign to me you know, because of that. Now, I've seen other microcontrollers that are simple but it's one of those things where once you learn picks it's kind of just like well everything that makes a pick difficult compared to everyone else is sort of just like well you can just deal with it you know i i I guess i don't see the problem with picks
3: um i've used probably every single microcontroller family under the sun um i would put picks very low on that list (laughs) that i want to use again (laughs) um but I don't see like an actual problem with them. Uh, they're especially the older ones. The data sheets are not very good sometimes.
2: Oh, and we had experience with that.
3: Yeah, finding a footnote, figuring out why GPIO is not you know flipping around. So,
2: but but when it all comes down to it, I know I'm grossly like generalizing and making this too simple here. But what I've personally found is that you know when you switch from one microcontroller to another most of the time you're still programming in C most of the time all of your stuff is generally the same you just have to scour the data sheet to find oh hey this configuration bit needs to be that or i have to use these capacitors with my oscillator or blah 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 like the the rules generally stay the same between different families it's just a matter of finding like whatever syntax differences you have to do to make it say hello you know yeah. So I, so so when it comes down to picks, it's just like they're the family that makes me do these things. Whereas, the you know these this other what pick any other microcontroller, they're the family that makes me do those things.
0: I, I I'm biased against PIX because uh, I don't like their programming interface and their fussiness with C. Um, oh, you
2: mean the uh, MP Lab X yeah. or whatever? Yeah, it's 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 a little bloated and confusing at first,
0: and. And they're, I mean, they have some interesting things that you can do with interrupts and uh, motors and whatnot, but they put a lot of burden on the programmer where other processors have taken more of that into their hardware abstraction layers or written more code for you that shows you how to do some of the more complex things. But PIC kind of throws you and says, eh, read our 300 page data sheet. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> well pick pick really loves you to access individual bits within registers
1: yes
2: and it and it, it, it loves to do bit masking and bit shifting like it's it, it to get into PIC, you need to know those things uh and to be honest i find that kind of fun i actually yeah. like doing that but uh, but I can understand that, like, the abstraction of, hey, this is, like, a pre-built-in motor driver within our pick where you all you do is write to a register and a motor does a thing. Like, I can understand why that would be appealing. See, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Parallax Propeller. Mm. And it's,
3: like, the exact opposite of a pick. Yeah, I was about to say. It has no hardware peripherals or things like that, so you have to write everything Um. Which is kind of interesting, because you're basically write a, like, oh, I need to have spy, so I need to write software to emulate a hardware spy. <laughs> right, but it's fast enough, and it has enough cores that you can just well, do yeah. it. You turn one processor into a hardware spy, basically. It's software still, but it's dedicated to do spy.
0: Yeah, and since it has a whole bunch of little processors in there, you just allocate them wherever they need to be.
2: Right. So, so if, if, if you're not a fan of picks, what are, what are you a fan of?
0: Well, so. Arm <laughs> standardized Cortex and now yeah, you can get Cortex from a number of different vendors. Pretty much and everything's arm. Cortex-Ms. I, I would, it, while I have used an MSP430 pretty recently and I have used, um, a, a couple of stranger TI chips, um, I, I prefer the Cortexes because there is less to learn between vendors.
1: I was about to say it depends a lot on the project. For the kinds of things we've been working on historically, they've been somewhat high volume, very feature-rich kind of things. Uh, Sensors and Bluetooth and uh, stuff like that, which kind of pushes you to a different level. Um, And I know PICs have higher-end ones, but...
0: Cortex M0 Pluses are pretty dumb and pretty small and pretty cheap.
1: Compared to a PIC?
0: Compared to an 8 or 16-bit processor, there are some out there that will compare well in the price range, yeah. And in the power range? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's fine.
0: I don't know. I, I, I always <laughs> thought it was funny that software engineers tend to prefer anything but PIC, and hardware engineers tend to prefer picks.
1: always. Always. A- every know, time an EE has designed something and yeah. it has a micro, it's like, oh here here's this and here's a you know a PIC sixteen doing something.
3: I, I think it depends on how old the uh, engineer is and what they learned. It's it's. it it goes with Steven was talking about. It's like he learned picks. And so he's like, Oh yeah, I'll just grab, I'll grab my bag of knowledge and plop it on the desk.
2: Well, okay. So, so I'll, I'll do a little bit of a defense right here, but this comes purely out of the fact that Parker can tell you without a shadow of a doubt. I'm, I'm not a software developer. I'm not a programmer at all. Like I can, I can dig my way through something and make it work, but I'm nowhere near good at it. So picks kind of, I like the fact that I, that I know, hey, I write to this bit and I activated a thing like mm-hmm. there's like a given trade right there. Like I pay that register money and it gives me what I wanted from it, you know, uh, sort of uh, situation. So it's like I like that really low level access to what I want something to do. And and to be honest, like what Parker was talking about with the propeller um, writing his own spy driver, I actually did that on my first Um, pick also I just you know wrote my own function to do that that was all just a a port call function basically with uh, with some like while loop delays and things like that and it works it worked fun Uh, and and so like I I like having that like I've, I've always had trouble with like relying on other people's libraries or other people's like stacks of whatever they have going on just because it's just like a level of I guess I don't trust that or i don't trust myself to implement it properly so i can just write it myself at, at the lowest level almost assembly and just it works that that comes from a non programmer's mouth
0: it's a very understandable methodology but and it's one i kind of share cuz i really I enjoy writing the code and reading code even now is harder than writing code for the most part i'd rather read the data sheet and then write the code than read somebody else's code but as as the smaller as even the smaller chips get more and more complex, I feel like I have to use some of these hardware abstraction layers, or at least be able to read them and take out the pieces I want, because more clients want the whole project done in a week because they 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 think that that's possible.
1: Well, and you're you're giving away part of your chip if you not to. You know, not to attack you for bit banging spy. We've all done something like that on some device, but if there's a hardware block that does it, you should use it. You should really use it'll it. It'll
0: be more. It'll be faster. It'll not be using less your CPU. buggy. Yeah. And even though it will take longer for you to implement initially, it will have the features you need.
1: Well, and I don't know if it would take you longer
0: necessarily. Mentally, you always think it will.
2: Yeah. I was just about to say, like, I have a, I have a funny story about it because. So so yes, I, I've I've made you know uh, both hardware and software um, spy drivers and things. I spoke to a an engineering manager of a of a large audio uh, company, uh, gosh, year and a half ago, uh, and we were talking just you know about a couple of their their products, and he actually confided in me that they don't use any hardware communication drivers whatsoever. They don't trust the bare metal. Uh, to do that they write every communication driver in their firmware um, even if their chips have like a spy hardware level on it which is interesting
3: doesn't make any
2: sense it doesn't it doesn't doesn't, but they don't they don't trust it their entire engineering team and it's like 15 guys on this hardware team and none of them they will all write bad news for
1: people who don't trust things like that they should not get into cars airplanes boats uh (laughs) walk on the street (laughs) use computers
0: you're giving away so much of your time and money and money and effort towards something that is totally pointless. Use the tools available. I mean, that's like saying, oh, I wanted to build a house, so I made a hammer. Well, here's
1: the other thing is those hardware blocks that are doing the peripheral things are verified by hardware engineers, right? That's There's chip verification. It's very rigorous. Writing a Bit banging software driver. It, I mean, you're going to write bugs.
0: You write it once, and you have bugs forever. Yeah.
3: There is going to, there is a, an advantage of not using that kind of stuff. I'm s- still saying use hardware, but like not using other libraries. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, like the difference between, um, uh, like let's just take Arduino for an example. Like the Arduino <laughs> analog read verse, if you look online, there's a library called Analog Read Fast. And it does it like a hundred times
2: faster? And basically just cuts out all the in-between calls. Even even digital read and digital write on on an Arduino are unbelievably slow. I
1: feel like bringing up Arduino isn't fair. <laughs> this is like this is like uh...
2: <laughs> it's it's a bunch of libraries stacked on top of an IDE that are just guaranteed to make every call slow.
0: Okay, so Arduino. I love Arduino. I really love Arduino because it helps artists and uh, people new to development and and it helps kids get interested in hardware and software.
3: I mean, I'll admit I use it time to time, too. It's really good at prototyping like your first. First thing you ever talk to a new chip or whatever, I'll usually try to see if there's an Arduino library already just so I can get it working out of the box. And then I port it over to whatever I'm using.
0: Right. But I do not agree with people who are using Arduino professionally. And I have so many reasons for that. But what you're saying is exactly true. It's, it's not fast. It's not efficient. It's really expensive for what it does it's just not the right choice. It's a great choice for prototyping and for getting into things and for just playing, for not worrying about, am I going to make a thousand of these, just goofing off, making the lights blink, the fun part. But once you're really serious about making something like professionally or, or commercially, that is not the right choice. So I'm not defending Arduino as a software development environment. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I guess if we're still on microcontrollers and stuff like that, like my current favorite right now is the EFM8 platform by Silicon Labs. Um, they're just cheap,
2: like forty cents in singles, <laughs> and they're, they're robust. And you can get fast versions or low energy versions, and there's a lot of stuff you can do with them.
0: This is an eighty fifty one
2: 51 oh, yeah.
3: oh, no. What's wrong with it. that? There's nothing wrong with that. There's, There's like millions and millions they made great of, music of in support the code lines for
2: that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't even matter. Like, if it's an eighty fifty one under the hood, you're not even... You're compiling C to it. It's not like you're having to look at...
2: Well, I look at the object code sometimes for time-critical stuff, but... which Which this is probably... A great example of where hardware guys, you know, look at it differently, Uh, would just say, if it works, it it works. Does it really matter what, you know, what the processor architecture is and and what that's going to be, you know, in the end?
0: Oh, and if it works, no, it doesn't matter at all. But an 8051 is not going to be as power efficient or as processing efficient as later developed cores.
3: That's the thing though is um, I can't find. So I I developed a product a project on a product on it called the Macro Watch, which is a binary watch that runs on a coin cell, and that in
2: its sleep mode it pulls only like seven nanoamps. I think you calculated something like it has ten years of battery life. You know, if you never turn it on, yeah, actually. if you never turn it on, like, yeah. but it will it will keep time for ten years.
0: Assuming your so battery doesn't self Destroy, but <laughs> yeah, the that's an entirely separate issue.
3: But yeah, it's like they're that's the Sleepy Bee line. They all have like something B as their yeah. names. Um I really like it. It it their IDE can use a little bit more work,
2: um, but it works well enough.
3: It's definitely better than Arduino
2: one. I like their <sighs> their graphical representations of the chips and their pinouts and things like that. That's kind of nice. And they're really, on the hardware end, it's really easy, too, because they actually, if
3: you don't need timing constraints or anything, you can just use the internal oscillator, and all you have to do is give it a bypass cap, and it's pretty happy.
0: Internal oscillators are awesome.
3: Yeah. And this one's even got, like, if you have an external clock, it actually has, they have, like, programmable loading caps, so you can set what the load
2: caps are. So you don't even need load cap, external load caps. And they have a pretty wide range too, right? Of like what caps you can choose. If I remember right, there was there was like a handful of caps you could choose.
3: Yeah, but not the
2: one I needed. <laughs> <laughs> of course, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it had to be that way.
3: So I actually had to um, when I was setting up the loading caps because if you get it off, because this is for like an RTC, so you have to use a thirty-two point seven sixty-eight kilohertz something
2: for like that. for for timing. Yeah, yeah
3: yeah um i think that's the right number um but you had to load it right because if you don't load up those crystals right you actually will get drift and it won't oscillate correctly um and so i actually had to kept playing with what loading cap to use and i got kind of close to where you'd get a one second pulse coming out of the chip All
0: right i i am I'm, I'm still not convinced with the 8051 but you just need to go to, go to Jay's one dollar
1: microcontroller. He talks all, That's true. all about it. The
0: the the microcontroller, the one dollar microcontroller, it does give that one a pretty high bar. Well, I mean, it's not
1: like they just took an old 8051 and repackaged I know. it.
0: They, yeah, I know.
1: They put new bells and whistles on it. Slap it
3: it's actually it. got really powerful peripherals. Like yeah. the hardware it has is pretty impressive.
0: And that's what they do. They make a core that's super small and power efficient, and then they can turn off all of the peripherals they don't need. Um, I think his
1: biggest complaint was that when it's not in sleep mode and you've got the clock turned up, it, it yeah, it's not a little super hungry, power then. efficient.
0: All right, cool. Um, let's see, moving on, I have other questions for you. Uh, this one I liked a lot. If you could like matrix style, learn a software skill something you don't already know how to do, what would you like learn?
3: Web development.
0: Really? Like making pretty web pages or like making Uh, deep... Applications. Databases. So like
3: like AWS kind of stuff. Like using uh, React, JavaScript and stuff like that. Why? Why? That's what everything's built in now.
0: (laughs) But it doesn't change the physical world and that's the fun part
3: it's a i mean i've been building things that change the physical world all my life i've never built
2: a web app like a purely soft
3: thing yeah yeah Yeah. i've never done it before and that's what i've been kind of you know learning on the side is learning react and that kind of stuff because it's stuff i've never like Like, the first time I ever hit an API endpoint and I got data back, I'm like, holy crap, that changed my life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, I waited 28 years to try that? Damn.
2: (laughs) Well, I I can tell you what I I would do. In fact, we talked about this uh, last Thursday at the Houston um, Hardware Happy Hour. Uh, We had a group of hardware engineers all hanging out at a coffee shop around here. And, um, I mentioned one of the things that like, I truly have no clue, like it's, it's magic to me. Uh, I would love to be able to write drivers for windows. Like, what does that entail? What does that take? I don't know. Like, how do I make, you know, bits flip on my device and windows detects it in a way that is intelligent, you know, like that, that's magic to me.
0: How do you want to plug it into your windows box? Like USB?
2: Uh, sure, USB. That sounds fantastic. Let's Parallel port. Yeah, <laughs> parale- <laughs> IDE. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, with USB, you have to get a microcontroller that can speak USB, and then usually those can uh, pretend to be keyboards, or they can pretend to be no, mice. But he wants to
1: write a real device driver. It's right. part I, of Windows. I don't, don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to pretend. I want it to be like the real stack. thing.
3: He wants to make a the the Craigulus Special Three.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And so he would have to have a credulous driver,
2: <laughs> basically. Well, well, like it's not that I want to write it; I just want to understand it. Yeah. Like I don't. I have like to me, Windows feels like it has like eight thousand layers before yeah. you actually get down to a bit turning on a transistor somewhere. I know the bit turning side, and I can move my mouse, but all the layers that are in between I, are just a mystery to me.
0: Well, where Linux has a very separated kernel and application space. Windows didn't have that for a long time. They didn't do as well at making it so that you have an administrator who can install drivers and a user who can use drivers. And because it took them so long, they kept having little layers that would protect slash allow until you have this monstrosity and they kind of cleaned that up in Windows 10, Windows 9, Windows 8, whenever they went there to There was the, no 9, 7. So, oh, okay, then it must have been 10. Um, but it's still, I mean, if you wrote a Windows driver before, you can still see all the layers. Um, that is an admirable goal for understanding and very pointless.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to do that, I would, I would actually start with Linux.
0: Yeah. Because the, the concepts
1: Linux. aren't going to be totally foreign and you can see everything.
0: And then you start looking at, at Linux and POSIX and what it means to write a driver like that. And then when you, if you wanted to go over to Windows, Windows would make a lot more sense because it would have some of the same terminology and some of the same layers.
2: Well, okay, here, here let's, let's, let's go on this topic real quick. You said it's pointless to do that. <laughs> well, no, And, 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 and I, I love that. I think that's fantastic. But explain to me why, from your perspective, because you have way more, way more of knowledge about this, why is that pointless? Be- and, and, and I'm asking that. Is that because there's a thousand people who have written things that I could just implement and it would just automatically work? Or why?
0: Windows doesn't want you to. Because Windows has worked really hard to keep things, to keep hardware more under control. And so they provide a wide variety of USB drivers, because that's how most people plug in these days. Mm. And with the USB drivers, those are already in the layers, they already are well understood, and you can open up things. Now, if you go out and you get a Maxim USB chip or a, a a STM USB chip, you're still going to have to fuss with the USB to make it so that it works. But the, the bytes will come in one after another. You won't be playing with the single pins that you want to play with because windows doesn't want that. USB is already a standard. <laughs> That's
1: the fun part. Yeah, I mean, like it you, you, you can make a PCI device.
0: You and can. Then
1: you, you can't.
0: You can, oh. but then, Why would you not use one of the billion PCI uh, descriptors already out there? And it's kind of like for USB, if you could, you absolutely should use one of the, but, and then if you're using a USB thing and you want to have your own driver for it, you're still writing on top of the USB stack. It's not as deep a driver as touching bits.
1: Hmm.
2: Okay, so Stephen, you need to design your own OS now. Yeah, I, that, that's. I think that's what I'm getting at. In order to touch bits, I need, I need, uh, Craig OS
1: going on here. Well, if you really, if you really want to look at it, the, the Windows DDK is the thing you're, yeah, you're after. Driver development kit.
2: I went. I, you know, so so I have I have sniffed a driver development kit before. Uh, at a previous job, we were doing something that required it, and one of the other engineers was there, and he he was kind of walking me through what he was having to go through in order to do it. And, um, I say sniff cause it, it was, it smelled pretty bad. <laughs> it. it wasn't something that I wanted to even like touch. Cause it was just like, Oh, this looks horrible. <laughs> but that's what you want to do. Well,
1: that's why he wants in, to have in it. In theory, just given
2: to I want him. to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it's, I guess it just purely comes out of a, uh, just not having a good understanding of it. Like, i I, I'll take, I'll give this as an example. Um, I have a uh, a piece of test equipment back at home that is a voltage standard. So basically you flip switches on this thing and it outputs a voltage and it's a really accurate voltage standard. Now it has an entire GPIO bus on the back of that which you you know using whatever protocols they have defined in their data sheet I could control this thing via however many ways I want to. Now, I like that because the data sheet just kind of tells me, you do this and it does that kind of thing. Uh, and I love that just like down-to-earth GPIO, I have a connector here, I throw some bits at it, and I get something out of it. Um, that Now, the connection from there to some kind of higher-level thing, such as Windows... That's where I'm like, I want to learn that aspect. And it's purely, I guess it's mainly educational for me more than like, I don't need to actually do it. Because I know that there's a thousand ways that someone else has done it guaranteed way better than I could.
0: <laughs> I actually think Chris's suggestion of try it in Linux first is a good one. I mean, this is, yeah. this is an instance where a Raspberry Pi would give you hardware access and let you build up whatever you wanted, and then once you had that plan and you could see the layers on the on the Linux side, it might make a lot more sense on the Windows side.
3: Yeah, actually, you can probably just glue a Raspberry Pi to the back of this thing, and do direct GPIO access on your Raspberry Pi,
2: and
0: and serial port to the other side. Just you see that,
2: that part that that part is fairly simple
0: yeah and that's I've, no fun.
2: I've already i've already done that on on raspberry Pi's. i'm not saying like that's boring or anything like that i love the fact that the raspberry pi you have a full computer that has an os running on it but if you want to talk to a pin you can straight up do that i got it
1: yeah that's not put, fun at put all put a
2: wifi, Wi-Fi on the raspberry <laughs> pi so
3: now your voltage standard is an iot device and you can just ssh <laughs> into it over your network that would your, be fun and then run whatever you want that would
2: be a lot of fun
0: but yeah that's that's why there are so many raspberry Pis on the net Remember well, okay, add it, it to the
2: project list
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> okay, what hardware skills should I learn as a software engineer who wants my doubly e to appreciate me more?
2: um let's see so so I actually have one that I think would be fantastic and 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 we have something. Well, I believe you guys actually have something written out about this, which is funny because I think both sides kind of argue about this same topic. Uh, It's the idea of reading and interpreting schematics because both of us have to play by the rules of the schematic in a way. And one thing that would be fantastic is for software people to be able to look at a schematic and get a lot of the answers that they need to. Not necessarily exactly how everything works or all the equations that go behind it, but things as simple as, hey, this is my input signal. It's going to this pin, and I can see that because it's this part of the schematic or, you know, something of that sort. So just a a general ability to read a schematic is a very valuable skill, in my opinion, for a software developer.
0: How did you learn to read a schematic? Did you learn to read it by writing it? Or did you ever learn to just read it by reading
2: it? Uh, I So I'm kind of weird, I guess. But so I I kind of taught myself how to read schematics back in high school because I wanted to build guitar amps. And I started downloading as many schematics because I knew that was the way that they were built, but I didn't understand them. So I just spent a ton of time looking at a bunch of them and reading a bunch of information until... Eventually, I could identify all the individual components and, you know, it just grows from there. I got mine
3: uh, reading um, appliance wiring diagrams. So it's not quite a schematic, but it's kind of close. Um, yeah, repairing appliances and stuff when I was in high school. So.
0: Okay. So you both did learn to read them before you learned to write them.
2: Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I always, I learned to read them, but I always wondered if it would have been easier if I had been writing them first. Um, Because now as I can sketch them, I I can read them better. But it took me a long time to realize that there was a lot of the schematic I didn't need to follow. Um, That there were whole pages I could kind of just mark off as, yeah, this is power conditioning, I don't care. Just give me my 3.3 volts and go on to the next page.
3: Yep. That's actually a good point, is like... Maybe part, if you're working on a team, part of your schematic is, this is what matters for firmware, and this is what matters for software.
2: Absolutely. And notes on the schematic are invaluable. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, fill it up with notes as long as it's not super cluttered and you can still read it.
3: Um, I would say reading schematics is probably the best way to improve your schematics that you're writing, because you learn, why isn't this explained? And then you put it on yours
2: right and and be logical about your schematics I mean chunk things into circuits that make sense to be together uh you know it it does help to have a a uh, path through which signals flow um, if if you're a right to left guy or a left to right guy it doesn't matter just pick one and stick to it stick to you know? it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 have it such that like yeah if you have like you were saying if you have six pages of signal conditioning that connect a thermal couple to a processor, uh, let your firmware guys know that, hey, pages one through six, you don't care about. Page six is or seven is the one where your signal gets into the microcontroller or something like that.
3: Well, and you also should specify what kind of signal that is. So like if it's an analog signal, it'd be like, it's going to be in this range.
2: Right, right. And you can expect these values in your code or something like that.
1: Well, that's, that, uh, that's a point I'd... Like to make because you you say you can ignore p- parts, but what you're talking about signal conditioning. Sometimes we can't ignore that because uh there have been certainly instances where that hasn't been done quite right. Oh yeah, and it bites us in the end because we have to end up fixing it in firmware with like oh we have to do this we, we have to reinterpolate this entire range because it's non-linear when I mean, we expected it to be linear or we have to correct it for some other thing, but. There's a lot of cases like that where if somehow we'd been involved in the in the analog design, which we can't understand. <laughs> uh, you see where I'm, I'm saying?
2: Oh, yep. Yes. Well, but 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 the way you're describing it, what that sounds like is, you know, not necessarily I'm not saying like this is the end of the world or a horrible no. issue or anything like that, but it sounds like the hardware guys maybe they either were relying on the fact that they were hoping that their prototypes would just work or maybe their calculations weren't right, or maybe they were expecting that we were going to do this in the future where we might have to, you know, apply a polynomial to whatever, you Yeah. know. Uh, and, and, and I think that goes back to what I said a bit earlier about you got just, just got to have communication between the teams. Um, you know, if somebody makes a decision such as, Hey, I'm not sure if this signal conditioning part is going to work we're just going to have to try. Well, you know, that's, that's an acceptable, you know, solution. Just make sure everyone knows that. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's nice with the analog bits that I'm not following to be able to say, well, can you walk me through this? Especially if there's an answer at the end that says expect voltages from one to three volts.
1: This goes into software.
0: And, and then (laughs) I'm like, okay, one to three volts. I can totally get that. What does that represent in physical units for the sensor? And then that's, that's really awesome. Um, when you do schematics, do you do you have lots of lines connecting things, or is everything net named and then you have to search for the net names?
3: So on, for Stephen and we're I, we're different at, at We do it completely differently. Um, I will if it's ground or the power, in its logic block, so to speak, um, they are all connected, and they will have a symbol, or whatever. If, and if it's a signal, it. And if it's a signal that leaves the logic block, it gets net named. Um, if it's inside the logic block, um, I usually will name the nets unless I, like, oh, there's no reason to, you know, name that net for some reason. Um, those all get connected. But, um, yeah, so if you have, like, your power filtering over on one side and then your microcontroller on the other side, I don't go and connect, like, the power good signal.
2: So so usually the things that I make into like net nodes are power, um, sometimes ground, but a lot of times I'll draw out ground because a lot of the circuits I work on are very uh, strict on how ground has to work. Um, so power is almost always just a net name because it's just power. Um, now, I block things as much as possible on my schematics. So I'll put my whole microcontroller, and if I know it has you know, offboard RAM that's next to it, I'll put that right next to it on the schematic, and I will literally dry, draw boxes around the things, and I will name those boxes. I will say, this is the USB input I see. This is the microcontroller. This is the memory. I will, I will put notes all over the place on mm-hmm. things because it just helps things stick in my mind. Now, if it comes down to things like, spi and i've got like 50 chips that are all on the spi bus i won't draw 50 lines everywhere i'll just say hey this is you know the 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 couple lines for spi i'll make those buses and you can look at every chip and see hey this is an spi chip because it accesses those buses um i've found that that's the easiest to read um and in general my analog stuff is all physically wired uh, I mean, not physically. You see the wires on my schematic, and my digital stuff is all blocks that are all named.
0: This seems like a trend that has changed over my career. It used to be everything was wired together, and you'd end up with these schematics that were mazes, and I would feel like I was doing those third-grade games where you have to follow the line. I remember getting out markers and trying to figure out where everything went because some of them didn't have names. And I remember in an interview, somebody handed me a schematic that didn't have very many names and asked me what chip did what, And I was shocked to discover (laughs) that I could tell which one was the flash chip and which one was a sensor just because I had enough experience looking at these things by then. But now it seems like nothing is connected and I have to do this game of trying to this is the other third grade game where you have a list over here and a list over here and then you try to draw the lines in between to figure out what connects and i don't i don't like either way <sighs>
2: There's a balance for sure between the two. Like if if you're just naming every single pin that comes off of a microcontroller, its own individual name, and then you have to hunt and peck for yeah. every single one, it's annoying.
3: It really is. That was how I used to do it.
2: <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, I've, I've seen some of Parker's old schematics and it's just like, oh, so you just thing, know it, but it's really is, hard to read. Even before that, because
3: I learned by reading wiring diagrams, is I drew them like wiring diagrams first oh geez so it was everything was wired
2: (laughs) yeah 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 actually if you want to have fun go to google and go look up the original schematics for the apollo guidance computer if you want to see schematics where every single thing is connected to every single thing uh it's like i don't know how many pages for that original computer but it's like gate level logic no it's more than that it's far more than that (laughs) Far more than that. And it's all gate-level logic, and they're all just connected to each other, and they just have, like, page-in and page-out connectors named, you know, a ton of random things.
0: And they used to have the schematics be, you know, four by four. I remember printing them out on the big plotter at work, and it wasn't, like, eight and a half by elevens.
3: Oh, four foot by four foot?
0: Yeah. They were enormous, and they would go on the wall. Yeah.
3: I was thinking, like yeah. you said, eight by eleven after four by four. I'm like, oh, four no. inches
2: by four inches.
0: Yeah, like
3: <laughs> you might get like two or three gates. Like, oh, what are we talking about
2: coasters? <laughs> coasters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they, I mean, that they, what they used to have a whole like army of people on uh, uh, drafting tables writing oh, yeah. all those up. Yep. Yeah, that was that must have been a lot of fun. So, so from from okay, L- let's let's crack into the the software side of things. In terms of schematics, what would you prefer that we do that makes your lives easier?
1: Definitely the thing you were talking about with putting blocks in common places and marking them, having the schematic be part block diagram and part interconnection, I think is is super helpful Uh, because we don't really get block diagrams anymore.
0: Yeah. Block diagrams are really cool. Although I noticed in Altium, they're doing more with the block diagrams. And a couple of times now I've seen the hardware guys use net names on the block diagrams that are then reused in different places inside. So like oh, that's not good. power, like they're <laughs> like power in different places and it means 3.3 on this side and it means five on that side. And I'm just like, shoot me now. And and then the person who told me this then said, oh, it's object-oriented. And I swear I almost shot him. But I, I'm much too nice for that. Wow. So I was pretty violent. Sorry.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. make sure we always have all of our uh, power lines, you know, defined properly. <laughs> so what's the proper way to do that? Is it
3: 3.3? 3v3?
0: Oh, I Actually, don't so, care. As long as it's so, well, consistent. But- <laughs>
3: Hang on. It's actually on. a question for Steven, I guess. Well, but,
2: but, but the thing is, like, when you, when you start getting into it, sometimes you'll have a 3.3 digital and you'll have a 3.3 analog. And those are different power supplies that you want to be different yeah. and they go to different things. And so one so, should so, have an
0: A at the end.
2: Uh, I usually do um, D-I-G and A-N-A at the oh. end just to like make sure that it's like, Crystal you clear. know what it's going to. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, so that's really what it all boils down to. As clear as you can be. You know, if it, if it takes you an extra two seconds, you know, to, to, to just always ask yourself, if someone else was reading this, would they be able to get it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the big things there. And uh, everyone has their own way of, of doing it. You know, you hand, you hand 10 projects to 10 hardware engineers, you're going to get 10 different schematics and they're all going to have the fingerprint of whatever engineer did it. But they should all be readable at the end of the day.
0: It's funny, in software, we have coding standards. And part of the reasons to do that is so that our code looks less individual. Have you, is there ever been a hardware schematic standard? I guess there probably is.
2: I mean, technically everything on a schematic is, you know, a a standard. Like when you look at a transistor, it should look the same every, across everyone's computers. Uh, However, you know, Parker, did 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 they ever teach you how to draw a schematic in college? No, no, they, they like I I never once opened a uh, a PCB program because of college. I did it on my own, you know, uh, and so you know anything we did was just like whatever wires we had to do in our lab notes to get you know get by. I mean,
3: I can think of three different ways to draw a resistor.
2: Yeah, a schematic. Right, there's a bunch of ways, and it's different actually based off of you know where you are in the world. You know, mm-hmm. in in the UK, they draw resistors as a as a box as opposed to a squiggly line, and so you know it. Y- there are some standards angled some. squiggly line. Oh, I apologize because a okay. squiggly line is an inductor. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> that's you're a right, springy you're right. line. It's yeah, springy line. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yes, there are standards, and and we. We like to pretend like we follow those.
3: I think he was talking about like the implementation of the hardware is going to be like we can talk about like if, if you give us a project like I'll use an EFM8 and, and then Steve be like I'm going to use a pick for some reason.
2: Well, I mean, I was. Yeah, I, I, I do mean that. But also at the same time, like t- I, I was using a transistor. So let's run with that like an NPN bipolar transistor the emitter has the arrow pointed okay. out. out of it it yeah. should always point out. Regardless of how big or small or weird you draw it, it should always point out such that you know that's the emitter. It might not be a circle. It might be a square. It might be whatever. I don't care, whatever, as long as like eventually I can read it. I think that's where the standard comes in.
3: I really want someone to draw a really weird-looking NPN transistor schematic symbol now.
2: Yeah, we should we should do that and then make a shirt out of it. For the and then write MacVeb engineering podcast under. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I,
0: I actually didn't mean a standard for the components because I I guess I knew that that happened and I viewed although those, it sounds
1: like less than I thought yeah
0: a little bit less than I thought I kind of viewed those <laughs> in the same class as software keywords it's like no you don't get any choice about those you have to use those um, I wondered if there was some standardization attempts towards. Net names and and wire patterns and how you.
1: I'm sure individual companies
0: put have together. Things yeah,
3: individual yeah, companies will usually have like a document, like for that. But no,
1: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Yeah, it's mean, the same as for code. You know, yeah, there's no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: there's. I mean, there there are attempts to get us to start doing coding standards and.
1: And people publish them. And,
0: and people publish them. And, and, and mostly, some of our yeah. tools help us uh, lo- follow them.
1: Yeah.
3: Local variables are all lowercase. Global variables are all uppercase.
1: Blah, 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 blah. That sort of thing. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um, There's more and more standards, like actual legit standards for this stuff when you're talking about like defining footprints and packages. Yeah. But even then, people don't care. That's the thing about, it's like, People just
2: don't care about those standards <laughs> as much as we talk about them. I I, I would think I would make the argument that, it, uh, that maybe they're not fully educated on them. And what I mean by that is, like, a lot of people don't know that those standards exist. Like, when you're That's just true. doing an 0805 surface mount resistor, like do do people know what ipc number document to go to that tells them how to do that i would i would venture to guess 9 times out of 10 they don't know what number that is you know don't do you, you know? just
0: get it from it digi-key? starts with a 7
2: <laughs> no no digikey does not provide the layouts and and in fact most of the most companies will not provide those things because then there's some form of liability. If your circuit doesn't work or if it doesn't reflow properly or something, they'll give you guidelines, but they will not tell you exactly how to do it most of the time. You know, they'll, they'll give you pretty good guidelines.
0: Are there, I I heard something about a standard library of parts from a few vendors.
2: Yeah.
3: I think DigiKey just started doing that with KiCad. Um, this is, this is getting to that kind of mentality with, I guess, hardware engineers. Because where Steven was talking about, like, wanting to learn how drivers worked and, like, wanted to do it just to learn how to do it. And so it's his. That's how I think hardware, a lot of hardware engineers are with packages and hardware is we don't trust, like, what other engineers do oh no like if steven <laughs> if steven gave me a footprint i probably would not use it
2: It's other way around is probably true too exactly oh, and why? it's not what, it's why? where I
1: mean... did tell me where people hurt you uh
2: when when we
3: first when we first started with electronics and the first time you spin a board and it won't work because you put a uh SOSC wide package instead of a but you That's did that I to see yourself. Narrow? No, oh,
2: you, downloaded the pa- you downloaded the footprint.
1: <gasps> oh, and I see, I see. Uh, you
2: got and somebody else's library. Yep. You just trusted that they did it right. It looked good, but it didn't work.
3: And the difference is when we hit compile, it takes three weeks instead of 30
2: seconds. Yeah.
0: And three every time we hit money. compile,
2: it's a lot of money. Yeah. Right. So the, old, the only way to, you know, the thing is you, you own all of your mistakes if you make a mistake, but you also own all of your successes when you make it. And I'm not saying like that's like virtuous in any kind of way, uh, but it is one of those things where like the way you know you're right is you just do it. Yeah, I, I would
3: say because if you, if you did the design yourself and designed everything and you got it wrong – you can just hate yourself.
0: You can't <laughs> hate
3: some random guy on the
0: internet. Sure you can. There are whole forums devoted to that. <laughs> I
1: thought that was the point yeah. of the internet.
0: So, I mean, entering these footprints is pain. And it's, it's not, it's tedious and boring and... Tweaky. that's the most fun part i is, actually enjoy it too that's my yeah. favorite
3: part of the job is actually finding a new part and being like i get to write, th- i get to draw this out and cat it out and you know that's like the best part is finding those new parts that are got weird packages
2: yep and and you know a lot of the standards for these ipc's You know, standards I was talking about. A lot of times they don't tell you, hey, if you have a part that looks like this, then do exactly this. What they tell you is, hey, for this much pad coverage worth of solder, then you need to follow a 50% rule of blah, 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 you know, things like that. So half the time they're not telling you exactly what to do. They're just like, you calculate based off of statistics that we know that this is going to work 99% of the time.
0: And so you end up reimplementing these fairly complicated things over and over again
2: or not not for every board i mean parker has his own library of like resistors that he always uses i have mine and and like those i they're trusted cuz i've built boards in the past with them and so i know that that's always going to work for me and i actually like i my like let's say it's like an 0805 resistor
3: like the one that the package i designed is actually in between what a purely machine placed footprint would be and what a like hand soldered footprint would be and it has some trade-offs on both of those so you can rework it by hand with an iron or you can or it will reliably go through the reflow oven but you give up like board space for Mm -hmm.
1: that so let me tell you what this sounds like to me (laughs) and i and i i see where you're coming from i really do because this is mechanical stuff and there's there's physical things happening here. But from my perspective, this is like saying, well, every time I do a project, I rewrite the operating system from scratch. And I have some bits that I've written in the past, but I always use my operating system that I wrote, even if I'm making something, you know, an iPhone app. From a software perspective, it's like, okay, well, I mean,
3: I have everything not... I
1: do. I've made myself. Which I mean, that's is, not...
3: Tr- That's not completely true. I mean, like I will reuse all my footprints. It's not like but
1: I- they're yours, right? Sure. You, you, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to argue. I I find it fascinating.
0: It's a very different mindset. Yeah. From especially, I mean, I am. I'm going to a talk tonight about a, a library that in Python, and I don't think I really want to use this library, but I want to know about it, and.
1: It's kind of like what you were saying about wanting to learn web development. That's completely the other end of the spectrum, right? Where you're you're mm-hmm. only piecing things together from other people's things.
0: Yeah, See, you're uh, not doing web development from scratch.
3: <laughs> is actually, I, I'm not. I, I do agree. I'm not doing it from scratch. But like when, because I'm writing a lot of it in Python and, and JavaScript, it's like if I hit import and you know insert Python thing, yeah that you can import, which is, like, everything. Um, I actually will go to where that stuff resides and read it. And, like, how does that thing work? Um, Because I just want to import something and it does something else, you know.
0: Okay. I mean, I read the API about it, and I'll read a function or two if I'm unclear on the API. But I trust the APIs and then go on. And it's only when things go horribly wrong that I...
1: But like they say... When things go horribly wrong for them, for them it's, it's money a, and time. It's a, and when, it's, when it goes deal. horribly and, and, wrong and for it's And let me, me also give you a little time. bit
2: of a story. Um, at, at a previous job, when we would do a new product, um, if it was just a prototype, usually there would be a handful up to like maybe three engineers who worked on it, and they would kind of go off into a hole and do their own thing. But when we were getting closer to going to production, we would have a full design review where... You know, uh, up to, you know, three to five engineers would go into a room for days on end. And what we would do is we would go every single item on every on the schematics. We would pull up the data sheet for that. We would pull up the footprint for that. We would measure everything. We would double check everything because, you know, every footprint was created and to the company. That was actually more valuable to pay multiple engineers their full salary to do that than it was to order, you know, 20 boards and all of them be bad because one footprint was off or because, you know, one thing was off. It, like the, the cost offset was good enough for that.
0: So you each write your own individual operating system based on things you've done before, and yet you believe in Usually your company
3: has like a set of (laughs)
2: footprints. That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, this company that I was talking about here, they had been designing circuit boards for 25 years. So they had success placing a resistor, you know, over and over and over and over. So we would use that resistor package. It was trusted. It was known. It was good. And it was to IPC standards. You know, but if we made a whole brand new funky sensor, there might not even be a package for that. You had to create your own package or some kind of weird chip that we didn't have in our library. You have to create it for that. You know, so uh, I, I think it's it's
0: unavoidable in in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I'm just I, I, you have code reviews. You you have detailed, in depth code reviews of actual important information, and not just. Fluffy names and stuff. It's it's odd because you have, as software engineers, we trust our libraries a lot more than you do, but we don't always get to have really good code reviews because we trust our libraries and you know we're we're, make, we're throwing Lego blocks together and if they stick, then yay. And if you get to have code reviews to say, oh, those two should be moved over, that's awesome. But a lot of times when you're working in a small team, you can't even do code reviews.
3: I mean, isn't that what happened with the the uh, SSH bug that was, what, a couple of years back?
0: The go-to bug? Is that the right one?
3: I think it was the heart did, something. Did someone use a go-to statement? No, oh, there was. I think it was oh, yeah. the heart, heart thing. Heartbleed. Yeah. Was that the SSH bug?
0: That and sounds w- right.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. That was such a big thing at the time, and now it's like, oh, oh, no, no, I don't remember Heartbleed anymore. was
1: SSL. It was in TLS.
3: That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yep. But it's like, that was something that's been there forever, and it finally took someone to look at it and be like, oh, oh, well, that's not good.
0: To look at it, <laughs> to understand, and to report. There were three points there.
3: Yeah. But it's, it's that same thing, where like, you know, at least someone could just press compile on that one again. Well, and then update all the systems.
1: Yeah, that's a tricky. And everyone
3: Everyone who uses it, (laughs) including the embedded systems that aren't
1: updatable. Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and 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 uh, and you know, not to beat a dead horse. Well, I guess we can leave this as kind of the last thing. Let's say, let's say that um, you used a footprint on a board that worked. It got through manufacturing. Everything is great, and then ten million units got out into the field, and you find out that because of your footprint that something could make it fail in the first two months of running. Then you're really screwed, you know? Then you would have said, oh, I, could, I wish I would have looked at my footprint and made sure that everything was right about it.
0: But if you'd used a standardized footprint, all right. So why, I, I guess I'm, that's I'm, the
1: question. Why aren't there
0: standardized, standardized footprints, footprints that, that
1: everyone agrees and has tested? And, why, uh, is there,
3: why is there not one standardized code, software code?
0: Well, we have only a limited number use. of operating systems to choose I mean, choose we from. do.
1: We have the languages, and we can't deviate from them while using them.
3: Well, well I, I mean, you can use Python. Well, all I'm getting at is, like, you can use Python. You can use C++. You can use C Sharp. You can use Rust. You can use... But it sounds more like you're so saying you there can mix a, and why match isn't there them all together to
1: in one... In one.
3: <laughs> no, is it? why isn't there a standard co- like language? One language to use every, all of them. It's the same thing in the hardware world, where... Some footprints are better at other things okay. than
2: other ones. Well, and, and, and I think, uh, so, so a little bit further than that, if you go look at the standards for even the most basic component, a resistor, even the the IPC standards will give you three separate footprints that you can pick from. Uh, and they relate to three different manufacturing capabilities if you want to do you know xyz manufacturing in china then pick this one if you want it to go into space and be super reliable then pick this one and it's going to cost more and things like that so these the thing is like it's never just default it's never just like pick one and you're good i mean for the majority it is but it's not always going to be that case
1: wow i'm sorry <laughs> that sounds no, really hard. I wasn't
2: trying to be
0: mean about it. No,
1: no, no. I, no it sounds really hard. That was hard.
0: a really good explanation. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, that that's.
2: So I, I wish <sighs> it was that way. Yeah. And okay, so I'll admit, in 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 some cases, that is true. Like the, the software package that I typically use for laying out boards is called DipTrace, and I have found just through experience that a lot of their basic level component. Uh, footprints are acceptable like the soic style packages and things the ones that are generally pretty easy to work with they're good and i will just use those but i was really skeptical the first time i used it because i was like i really don't know if it's going to work and the good thing is you can open up their default libraries and check all the dimensions so i did check all the dimensions and it was fine but uh you know in a lot of cases i will just rewrite that stuff
3: and also using somebody else's like footprint never it, that footprint never looks like your footprints mm. <laughs> and so it, like you have this and the text will be different and it's like Ugh, and they'll color it's got to be my style
0: like monsters
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you opened up somebody else's code library and it they got a completely different style they use they use tabs instead of double space
0: <laughs> those <Yeah>. monsters <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm actually a tab guy, so.
2: (laughs) Okay, so I I actually have a a quick question for you. I I actually thought up with this question earlier. Um, This is a little bit of a deviation, but still in the same world. So when it comes to a product, let's say that all four of us had designed a product together. Parker and I did hardware, and you guys did software and firmware. Um, Let's say that we're going to need some kind of a change to that product. Should, in your mind, should that start in the hardware team? Should that start in the firmware team? Who can initiate a change?
1: This the sales team. There should be a, team. Should be a product team. team.
2: <laughs> Never give the sales team an opportunity <laughs> to change something, because they will.
1: It, well, usually, historically, there's a product team. But the things I've worked on where people are defining what the product is, what features it has. Um, it depends on what the source of the change is, right? So if it's a bug... Uh, you know, is it something where we're going to have to rev the board? Is it something where we can do a firmware change? Uh, is it combination?
0: And it depends. Yeah, it also depends where it comes from. Is it that there is no longer flash of this size, or the lead time is yeah. twenty eight weeks? Um, and or, so that definitely comes from hardware features for the user. Usually come f- from the software direction because that's what they see. Who the product manager is complaining to. <laughs> because <laughs> that they think everything is software. Uh, I mean, there are system things. You And a lot of the companies I've been to, you end up with either one hardware engineer or one software engineer or a pair who really enjoy working together acting as systems engineers if they don't have a separate role for that, who talk about, oh, uh, you want to change the flash. Could you also make it better? Or, or could you also make it bigger? Or you want to change the flash, could you, I only use a quarter of it, you can make it smaller if that's cheaper. And if you have those communication lines, it's easy, but it does come to a big screeching halt when you're in production and the hardware engineer changes the flash, which has a different interface. And... Now you're in production and suddenly manufacturing has to stop because software no longer works. And everybody in the company is screaming at the software team. Don't get me started. And <laughs> the,
3: you triggered them pretty hard there.
0: <laughs> and how do you, I mean, how is that the software engineer's fault? There's a reason they get really angry at that point. Mm-hmm. And, but that's a failure of a systems engineer or it's a failure of a, a management Role, or it's a failure of the two leads who needed to have talked. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a team well, that w- failure.
2: That, that was actually another question I was going to ask. So let's just run with that real quick. If, the, if a hardware guy says, hey, I can shave five cents off by going to a different memory chip, how should he alert the rest of the team to say, hey, I want to do this. It's going to save us money.
0: The nicest thing, the nicest thing that a hardware engineer can do is to sit down and talk, figure out the differences of the data sheet themselves, which they have to do. And then tell me about the differences, ask me how long it will take. Like, just in general terms, is this a week long project or a six month long project? It doesn't, and definitely don't ask for like a specific number of hours. You're just looking for a scale. Now, you take that scale and you multiply. I don't know, multiply it by your salary. You don't have to ask my salary. Just multiply it out by how many hours that is, and how long it would take, and and figure out if that five cents is actually going to save you money, because engineers are quite expensive, and if you are only making a thousand of something and you're spend and you're saving five cents on it, and you're using a hundred engineer hours, <clears throat> not going to compute. Uh, so there's. So once you have the how long is it going to take, then you go back to your manager and you say, okay, they say it's going to take about this long. It will save us this much money in the next six months. Your manager goes talk to their manager. Their manager says, oh, my God, you talked to the hardware engineer. Why did you do that? Uh, or no. But they You're not supposed say. to
2: talk to those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're cave trolls.
0: <laughs> um, and and now you have a value proposition. You're not changing things for a small thing you're changing things to make the whole system the whole team the company better and it doesn't feel like it's just oh I'm changing things because I don't know some vendor took me out to lunch which I swear I have felt that way that like the only reason this changed was because someone got a good lunch out of this
3: I mean I would do th- I'd do that I'd, I'd change a <laughs> part I got a good lunch well, because
0: <laughs> you're just changing the footprint and I have to do all the work should have taken me out to lunch at least too. <laughs> yeah. So I, That's a good point. I, I really like the idea of making sure you come at it from a team and systems perspective, even though that makes it a little bit harder. But as you said earlier, if you spend an extra 20 seconds or an extra 20 minutes making someone else's life an hour or two easier, then you've, you've won. It's a team sport these days. I know we're all individuals, but it's still sadly except for footprints a team sport unless <laughs> you're making
1: your
2: footprints. footprints. If we were all here, we could have a big group hug.
0: now. Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, that's actually a really good point to leave it on. Uh, unless you you all would like to have final thoughts, closing arguments, <laughs>
1: closing
3: arguments. <laughs> one more, one more. Right. Okay. Debouncing a button, firmware or soft or hardware. Oh, Parker's
1: asked me this one before. Uh, a hardware, because I'm lazy
0: uh it depends on the quantity if it's more than ten thousand then I'll do it in firmware but if it's less than ten thousand, buy your own capacitor
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think the last time i answered this i said both wow.
3: i i implement Ooh. i usually built and
0: suspenders <laughs>
3: yep. well uh if you talk about like um uh f c c c e testing and stuff it right. makes a lot of sense to do it that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wise in software to always debounce your buttons or to admit that you don't really care if you hate your user and have them push the button twice. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You know, okay. And, and here's a quick gripe that is totally off topic, way big tangent, something that I think really needs to change. And I don't know if this is a hardware or a firmware thing, but when you're at the gas pump, any gas pump, it doesn't matter. Pick any single one. <laughs> Why are the computers so damn slow? Like, okay, so th- if I if I press a button, it <laughs> should just go.
0: <laughs> you should hear Christopher's rant about point of sale systems and how awful <laughs> they are.
1: I think they're slow uh, on purpose. I will answer it this way: lowest bidder.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that that makes sense. Yeah, just make them a little bit faster, like. It's uh, the only thing about making it slower, the only thing it hurts is the guy who wants to go fast. Like, everyone else could go slow if you want to.
1: They could sell more gas if they could put people through faster. Yeah. Yeah. They're losing yeah, money. There
2: we go.
3: You see the new gas stations, right? They have screens that have like ads and stuff on yes. them. Uh-uh. Yes. Yeah, and they
1: yell at you. That's where all the computing power is going, video decoding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that it's all...
3: not going
2: to the
1: button. That's ads, for sure. The
3: ads buffer quickly. It's actually like. When you have to type in your zip code, that takes forever. Oh, my God. It's it's It's, horrible. And then you you accidentally hit cancel,
2: and it's game over if you do that. Usually when that happens, just change pumps. Yeah, no, I've I've done that. I've literally (laughs) driven to another pump. Yeah. Uh, That's my closing argument there.
0: All right. Yes. Well, this has been a crossover show of the Macrofab podcast with Stephen Craig and Parker Dillman. And the Embedded FM podcast with me, Alicia White, and my co-host, Christopher White. You can find both podcasts in your normal podcast app or look on their websites, macrofab.com under blog or embedded.fm under...
1: Embedded.fm. Embedded.fm.
0: <laughs> thank you to Christopher for editing as well as being my co-host and producer. Thank you to Stephen Craig and Parker Dillman for joining us. And of course, thank you for listening. I have a final thought to leave you with because this is something we do on The Embedded Show. And my final thought this week is from the painter, Bob Ross. If we all painted the same way, what a boring world it would be.
2: If we all drew footprints in the same way, what a boring world this would be. (laughs)
3: Thank you. Yes, you are listener for downloading this show. If you have something that you want Stephen and I to talk about, uh, send us a text at, oh, the cable just plugged out. Anyways, send us a tweet at Macrofab or send us an email at podcast at Macrofab.com. Go check out our Slack channel. I'm trying to do this from memory because I don't have it written down, but I think that's all I need to talk about. Yeah, good. Later, everyone.